I think that was all one sentence, so well done, Shannon. I kept waiting for the period, but um, it's great to be with you this morning. My name is Charlie Dunn, and along with John, I have the privilege of getting to pastor this new neighborhood church in Lake Highlands. And, you know, it was about two years ago um, that we began, before we ever started worship, we began meeting uh, in homes with about five community groups. We had about 50 people on our launch team. And as we would meet together in homes, we were uh, reading through the New Testament book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells this incredibly unlikely story of how really against all odds, uh, in the face of intense persecution, these followers of Jesus were willing, um, joyfully, boldly, and freely uh, to share with their neighbors and their friends uh, this grace and forgiveness and life that they had found in Jesus. In fact, they shared this message so freely that eventually it began to spread all throughout the Roman world among people of every single class and culture. And as we were reading through this story together, we were asking, might God continue that very work in Lake Highlands today? After all, why do you start a new church? You don't start a new church for the reorganization of the saints. You don't start a new church just to try to move people from one church over to another to say, hey, isn't this exciting? This is happening over at this church, so I'll leave this church to go be a part of it. You don't start a church for the reorganization of the saints. You start a new church because you want to reach new saints. As Paul puts it in verse 7 of this introduction to the Romans, you're longing for more people to discover what it means to be loved by God and called to be his saints, to be made holy, not because you are holy, but because we've been made holy through Jesus' holiness for us. That's why you start a new church. And praise God, I look out in this room today, and I know that, that some of you um, have begun a relationship with, with Jesus. Some of you have returned to a relationship with Jesus. Some of you have found a church home that you did not previously have before, and we praise God for that. And, and really part of the DNA of who we long to be as a church is we want to be a church um, that wants to help our friends and our neighbors um, without manipulation, without uh, pressure, without sales tactics, but, but freely, joyfully wants to share with our neighbors and friends what it means to find and to follow Jesus. That's part of the DNA of who we want to be as a church. And so it's important for us, I think, to come back to that regularly. So you might remember last fall, um, we did a whole teaching series going through the Gospel of Luke. It was a series called Eating with Jesus. Anybody remember that? And we talked about how Jesus in the Gospels, he's constantly eating. He's constantly sharing his table with people, really anybody and everybody, no matter how far they might feel from God, Jesus wanted to share his table with them. And we asked ourselves, we said, what would it look like as a new church, if we were a people who were intentional, like Jesus, about wanting to share our tables 
in that way too, maybe with your coworkers, inviting them out to grab coffee or to have lunch with them, inviting your neighbors into your home for a meal. And as we share our tables and our lives in that way, how might God work through that to begin to open up doors to be able to have conversation about him? And I still think that's an incredibly important just lifestyle practice for us to continue leaning into together. But I remember in the midst of that series, some of you, you said to me, you said, you know what? Hospitality is a gift. Praise God if that's true for you. You said, I'm good at hospitality. I love to cook. I love having people into my home. I can get people around my table all day. But if God comes up in the conversation, I don't know what I would say. I don't know how I would go about trying to, to explain what it is that I believe, to try to put that into words in a way that would seem you know, relevant, that would really connect uh, with a non-believing coworker or neighbor or friend. I think if we're honest with ourselves, um, that's a fear probably for, for every one of us to some degree. It's a struggle we all have. How do I really put my faith into words in a way where I can explain it and share it with somebody who doesn't already believe? It's part of the reason why actually today, um, you know, Christians are having fewer spiritual conversations than ever before. Um, the Barna group who studies these kinds of things, they did a study recently. What they found is that 74% of Christians would say that they have had fewer than 10 spiritual conversations in the last year. And that includes conversations with other Christians, people who already share their same beliefs. If you look at Americans as a whole, regardless of what they believe, Americans would say that on average they have one spiritual conversation per year. And the reason why we're not having those conversations is not because they're going poorly. It's not because they're going badly and people get angry and upset and, 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 and you know, leave the relationship. No, actually, those who were polled in this survey who aren't believers, they said that the conversations they did get to have with Christians were actually very interesting, very life-giving, very meaningful. The reason why we're not having spiritual conversations is not because these conversations are going badly. It's because we're simply not having them. It's because increasingly we, we feel this need to turn inward, to privatize our faith, to keep our faith convictions to ourselves. We don't feel comfortable talking about them with other people, especially those who might not already share our beliefs. And that's really the impetus for the sermon series for this fall. So for the next 14 weeks together, we're going to be doing a teaching series called Faith You Can Explain. Faith You Can Explain. And we're going to be in the New Testament book of Romans. Maybe some of you have read Romans before. We're going to be looking at Romans 1 through 5. You know, Romans 1 through 5 is actually the most concise summary. If you want to know what do Christians believe, Romans 1 through 5 is the most concise summary of what we believe. Um, in some ways, it's actually a retelling of the whole storyline of the Bible, the whole story of redemption is captured in those five chapters. The theologian John Calvin once said, the book of Romans, it's like the key to unlock the whole Bible. 
If you want to understand the story of the Bible, he says, go to the book of Romans. So we're going to be in Romans 1 through 5. And as we go through these chapters together, here's what I hope happens. I hope that each week um, we are looking at a different aspect of the good news of Jesus. I hope that as we do, we find ourselves filled with a fresh sense of awe and wonder at the relevance and the beauty of the gospel for us, that we find ourselves increasingly convinced of its truthfulness and its beauty in our lives. I hope that we are anticipating some of the questions, some of the objections that our non-believing friends may have as they encounter the gospel in our modern world. And I hope that we're learning. How do we share this gospel in a way that speaks to the deepest longings and concerns of our seeking and skeptical friends, frankly, the deepest longings and concerns of our own hearts as well. And so that's what we're going to be doing together over the next uh, 14 weeks. But today, today I just want to really introduce this series as we look at Paul's introduction to his letter to the Romans. And I want to do that um, by asking essentially three questions. Here they are. First, can you explain faith? And spoiler alert, the answer is yes. It would be a very short series if the answer uh, were no, but I do want to talk about that because I think a lot of people would say, no, you can't really explain faith. Can you explain faith? Secondly, why don't we? Why don't we explain it? And then thirdly, how can we? How can we do so in a way that more and more connects with those deepest longings and concerns of our neighbor's hearts and our own. So let's walk through those three questions this morning together as we just get this series kicked off. Uh, So first, uh, can you explain faith? Is is your faith even something you can put into words? Is it something worth talking about? Is it something you can um, really communicate even in a way that would seek to persuade someone else to believe it? Can you explain faith? Uh, I remember when I was in college... Um, We had a guest speaker come to our college campus at one point, a fairly famous individual. His name was Tony Blair. Uh, Maybe some of you remember, he was the former prime minister of Great Britain. And he came to our campus because he was promoting this new organization. It was called the Faith Foundation. It was this way to try to bring together people from all the world's religions, um, what he called people of faith. You ever heard that term before? People of faith? It's an interesting expression. It's it's kind of a way of of really dividing up the people of the world. So over here, on the one hand, you have your, your people of faith. Who are they? Well, your religious people, right? Be they Christians or Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, Hindus. These are people who form their convictions about the world based on what? based on faith, based on religious beliefs. That's how they uh, come up with what they believe about the world and how they think you should live within it. So over here you have your people of faith, but then over here you have what? Your people of reason. People who form their convictions based on reason or on evidence or on science, on things that you can um, corporately observe and and discuss and, and talk about with other people who don't share those same convictions. And if you're a person of faith, that's great. That's wonderful for you. If that's helpful to you, 
more power to you, if that brings friendships into your life, if it's part of your culture and your tradition, that's wonderful. But what you should not do is try to talk about your faith with people who don't share those same convictions. After all, because your convictions, they're based on faith. You can't reason about them. You can't persuade someone to share them. You certainly shouldn't try to convince somebody of a different religion, other faith-based convictions, to share your faith-based convictions because after is a person of faith. That is to say, when it comes to our deepest convictions about what should the world be like, Or who should we be as human beings? What does a good life look like? What does it mean to be a good person? How should we live in the world? All of us are forming those convictions based on faith. That is assumptions that that we can't prove, that we can't demonstrate in a way that everybody else is going to uh, agree upon uh, with us. Let me give you just one example. So I don't know if you've, you've heard somebody with this perspective before, somebody who says, you know, I'm not religious. I don't believe in God, but I believe that everybody should be able to live their life however seems best to them. Right? You should live however you think feels best. You should believe whatever you think is best. As long as it's not hurting anybody else, right? you should live life however seems best to you. Now, the the problem with that is that, what is that? That is a faith-based assumption. There are billions of people in the world that don't agree with that. That's not a self-evident, sort of obvious sort of perspective. It's a a faith-based assumption that that's what's best for how people should live. That's what's best for society. Can you prove that there's no God who cares about how you live or what you believe? No but you're betting your life on it. You're hoping that there's no God who cares about that. And most likely, you're evangelizing other people. Most likely, you're trying to persuade other people to share that very same perspective. If you've ever heard somebody say, listen, I just think everybody should be more open-minded. They should be more tolerant. They should allow people to believe and to live however else they want. And if that's not your perspective, you're you're bigoted, you're narrow-minded, right? If somebody says that, what they're doing is they're trying to convert people. They're trying to persuade people to share their same perspective because they believe that's the best way to look at the world. The point simply being is that all of us, whether you're religious or not, all of us have faith. All of us, our deepest assumptions about reality are are based on a faith that you can't prove. And there might be better reasons or worse reasons for why you would put your faith in that conviction, but all of us are people of faith. In fact, we rely on faith every single day. If you've ever eaten at a restaurant, Right? You don't see them preparing your food. You don't know what's going into that. There's a lot of faith in that. There's faith if you go to the doctor, trusting that they're going to be able to take good care of you. There's, there's faith in, in, in buying a new home or entering a relationship or starting a new job. Faith in history, faith in the courtroom, faith even in science to trust our observations, to trust our interpretation of those observations. You know, And if any of you are very kind of philosophically minded, maybe you think the sermon is all Already too philosophically minded, but for those of you who are, you know, philosophers, they will tell us you technically can't prove that all of physical reality isn't just an illusion, that we're not all in, in a matrix, that I'm not a frog dreaming that I'm a man. 
Now, I don't think that I am. I hope that you don't think that I am either. But we all rely on faith. We're limited, finite human beings, and it requires faith even just to function within our world. So many things we can't verify or prove for ourselves. So when we divide up the world between religious and non-religious people, people of faith and people not of, of faith, we're masking the fact that all of us are people of faith. But, you know, the other big issue is that when it comes to the Christian faith, does it take faith to choose to, to give your life to follow Jesus? Absolutely. But it's not a blind faith. It's not an irrational faith. It's not a faith in spite of the evidence. It's not a leap of faith. It's a faith based on good evidence, a faith based on good reasons. You know, twice in the introduction to Romans, Paul mentions the word apostle. And you know, an apostle was someone who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus for themselves. They were an eyewitness of the resurrection, and they were specifically appointed by Jesus to proclaim his good news to the world. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I wish that I could have been among the apostles. Like, I wish that I would have gotten to see Jesus with my own eyes, to touch him with my own hands, to be able to eat with him, to spend time with him. Then it would be much easier for me to believe if I had that kind of evidence. But listen, friends, the apostles did. They got that kind of evidence. They got the royal treatment. They got all of the empirical, rational, experiential evidence that you could ever want. And they were so convinced by it that they went out into the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, even as it led to their brutal deaths. And if you've never looked into um, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection before, the evidence that we really can trust the Gospels and the, the record that they give to us of the life of Jesus, it's pretty convincing. It's pretty compelling. There really is good evidence behind what we believe. And even to take it a step further, I hope we'll see this in the course of our series. I think that the Christian view of the world is actually able to explain some of our deepest held beliefs and longings as human beings more than any other worldview. And I hope we do see that throughout this series. It's not a blind faith. It's not an irrational faith. It is, in fact, a faith that you can explain. And yet in spite of that, we often don't explain it, do we? We often keep it to ourselves. We often suppress it. Why is that? Given the fact that probably most of us in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, you would say the most important thing in my life is being a follower of Jesus, is belonging to Jesus. The best thing that ever happened in the history of the world is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, we often don't talk about it. We often suppress it. We often don't want to bring up the name of Jesus in conversations with people who don't share our faith. Why is that? Given the fact that we're often very glad to share with other people things that we think are good and true. If I find good fajitas that I like in the city of Dallas, right, I'm probably going to tell you about them. If I find a good deal, I'm going to tell you about it. If I you know, listen to music I like, if we think something is true and helpful, we're glad to share it. Uh, some of you might know, my, my dad um, for several years has had cancer. He's been in remission at different times. But back in February, 
Um, he got a scan where he found out it was, it was all over his body. It was stage four. But they put him on a new drug. It's, it's a kind of treatment called immunotherapy. And he began to take that every three weeks. And along with the prayers of many people in July, um, he got another scan. And his, his, his body was 98% cancer-free. And it was amazing. Praise God, absolutely. And, and, and as a result, um, he's had many people lately, though, who've heard that. And, and they've been calling him, people that he doesn't even know. People who have cancer, and they're asking him, they're saying, hey, tell me about this treatment. Might this be something that would be helpful for me and for my cancer? Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but, but he is more than glad right, to tell them about it because he thinks it's true. It's not a hoax. It's like based on evidence, but he also thinks it's good. It might be helpful for them. We're very glad to share things with others that we think are true and good. So why is it different when it comes to Jesus? Why are we often unwilling to bring him up in conversations with others? And I think there are a lot of reasons why that might be. We're going to come back to some of them next week when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What are some of the reasons why we don't share Jesus? But I think one of them that we just can't avoid, that you just can't get away from, that we probably just need to to kind of come to terms with and accept this morning is part of the reason why we're hesitant to talk about Jesus with others is because at the very heart of the Christian message is such an outrageous and potentially polarizing claim. What is that claim? It's the claim that God has actually taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That he's not just a good religious teacher. He's not just somebody where we can say, hey, he's been helpful to me, maybe he will be to you. That Jesus actually claims that he is God in human flesh. And that's a polarizing claim. You might have noticed in the passage that Shannon read for us from Romans 1, this is, this is what Paul says is the heart of the gospel message. This is verses, verses 2 through 4. I think it's on our next slide, Sam. And, and, and here's what he says. He says, the gospel of God, meaning the message of Christianity, he says it's all about a person. It's all about Jesus. And who is this person? He says, well, according to the flesh, he's descended from David, but he has been by the power, the spirit of holiness through his resurrection declared to be the son of God. In other words, Jesus is both the son of David, but he's also the son of God. Right? He's got these two natures to him. He's fully human, but he's also fully God. And notice the fact that the way Paul describes this, there's not perfect symmetry, is there? Because he says on the one hand, he says that Jesus became a son of David, but he didn't become the son of God. Right? He became a son of David. He was born as a human being, but he was declared to be. He was shown to already be the son of God through the resurrection. In other words, Jesus has always been the son of God. But then he chose for our sake to become also a human being. He became what he had never been without ceasing to be who he had always been. The heart of our faith is this polarizing claim that Jesus is God in the flesh. And you know, Jesus has always been polarizing for that reason. 
John Stott wrote a great, great book called Basic Christianity. He has a chapter in that book where he talks about how everybody in the Gospels who actually met the real Jesus was polarized. They had these extreme reactions to him. Some people were really afraid of him, and they ran from him. Some people hated him enough that they wanted to kill him. And other people were so taken with him that they wanted to give their whole lives to follow him. But you see, there's no sort of, I'm just going to kind of ignore him or be ambivalent to him. Jesus claims to be none other than God in the flesh, which is why, which is why you can't just say, right, I've got my religion, you've got your religion. You need to change your religion if he's God in the flesh. Which is why you can't just say, look, Jesus works for me, maybe he'll work for you. No, because if Jesus is really God in the flesh, then all of us need to respond to him. It's a, it's a life-altering kind of claim for him to say that he is God. Now, to be fair, most people who claim to be God are pretty crazy. They're pretty wacko. I think one of them lived in Waco. Uh, maybe you remember that story. We've, we've watched that on uh, Netflix. But typically when people claim to be God, um, they're, they're pretty crazy. They're pretty egotistical. Um, they act in abusive ways towards their followers. And usually their claim to be God, it dies with them or it dies with their followers. But the thing about Jesus is that he makes these outrageous claims, but then he also lived the best kind of human life. Like he's somebody who, who cared for the poor, He's somebody who stood up to injustice and abuse of power. Somebody who spent time with and welcomed people that society marginalized. He lifted up women. He welcomed children. Jesus combined, rarely combined qualities, somebody who is deeply humble, but who was also incredibly confident, who was never harsh. He was gentle, but he was also very strong. Jesus, who uh, was unbending in his moral convictions, but he was also so approachable. He lived the best kind of human life so that when you look at the life of Jesus, you say, okay, he makes these outrageous claims, but he, but he doesn't strike me as a lunatic. He doesn't strike me as a liar. That's how C.S. Lewis once put it. He said, look, if you're going to be honest about who Jesus really is in the Gospels, either he is who he claims to be, he's Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. But when you look at the life of Jesus, he doesn't seem like a lunatic. He doesn't seem like a liar. And so the force of that logic moves you in that direction of thinking maybe he really is who he claims to be. And I think if you're a Christian, you get that. You've come to understand that. You've come to recognize that, wow, Jesus really is the God-man. He really is God in human flesh. And yet at the same time, I think for us to share that with other people, somehow in this age of, of constant offense, we, we feel as if that's just too pushy. We're, we're going to be imposing on people because we recognize that that's a very polarizing kind of claim. If he really is God in human flesh, that demands a whole life kind of response. And, and so let me just say this. You and I, we don't have to push people. It's not our job to push people. It's not our job to manipulate people. It's not our job to demand that they respond to Jesus. Jesus is pushy enough on his own. 
If you introduce people to Jesus, I mean, read through the Gospels. Jesus is always pushing people off the fence. He's saying, look, you can't just be indifferent to me. Jesus has been pushing people off the fence since his ministry began. Our job is not to push people to respond, but it is our job to open our mouths, to mention Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to bring him into conversation, to invite our friends and neighbors to consider for themselves who he is, who he claims to be, to come to their own conclusion. And maybe in the process, they'll find that Jesus is very polarizing. But they may also find him very compelling. They may find him very attractive. They may find that Jesus is actually the one who is able to meet the deepest longings and concerns of our hearts. And so where I want to end this morning, and what I know has been a very kind of heady sort of of, of sermon is to just ask the question, how do we explain our faith in a way that does show its, its deep relevance, how it meets our greatest longings and concerns? And we'll do that throughout this series, but we'll do it this morning just with this one um, aspect of, of, of Jesus' very person, that he is the God-man. If Jesus really is fully human and fully God, how does that meet our deepest longings? in a way where maybe our, our non-believing friends would say, even if I don't believe this is true, I almost wish that it were. Well, let me tell you, if Jesus really is fully human, do, do you know what an extraordinary thing that is? That, that God actually became human? One of the things we want most out of life as human beings is we want to be known. We want to be understood. We want other people to get us, to understand us, to know what we've been through, to know what we're going through. If any of you have ever been in a support group before for a particular struggle or maybe for some experience that you've been through, you know how helpful it is to have other people who can relate with you at that level. They get you. And yet even in a group like that, you'll discover even if you've got some shared experience, they don't fully understand you. Right? No two lives are the same. They don't, they don't fully know all that you've lived and been through. Frankly, even in the very best of marriages, and sometimes in marriages, you, you can finish each other's sentences. You know each other so well. But even in the very best of marriages, there are some ways in which you feel like they don't, they don't fully understand who I am and, and, and the life that I've lived. And yet if God really has become fully human, then that means that God gets you. He knows you. He can understand you in a way that no other person can. And you look at the life of Jesus and you just see his experience. I don't know what everybody in this room is going through today. Maybe some of you are feeling lonely. Jesus gets that. Maybe some of you are single and you feel like everybody's pressuring you like you're supposed to be married by now. Don't you think Jesus got a lot of that? He was single for his whole life. Maybe some of you are grieving the death of a loved one. Maybe you're in physical pain. Maybe you feel betrayed or let down by somebody that you trusted, that you counted on. Maybe you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Jesus experienced all of that in our humanity. And, you know, maybe you say, well, but, but Jesus never sinned. He never failed. He doesn't know what it's like to, to feel like a failure, not to want to look at yourself in the mirror. Because you feel like you've blown it. You've let down somebody that you love. And yet even then, there is a way. Yes, Jesus never sinned. But you know, when Jesus went to the cross, the Bible says he became sin for us. And as Jesus bore our sin on the cross, 
as God poured out the judgment for our sin into his heart, there is a way in which Jesus absolutely understands the ravages of a seared conscience, of what it means to, to feel the consequences even of sin, though he himself did not sin. He knows you. He gets you. If God really became fully human, you have somebody you can go to who gets you and knows you better than anybody else. And yet, and yet more than that, right, we don't just want to be known. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We want somebody to see all of our faults and flaws and yet say, I still love you. I'm still committed to you. And we don't just want anybody to say that. We want somebody to say that that we admire, that we respect, that we look up to. And you can get that to some degree from another human being. But look, if you're throwing a party, you invite me to your party, and somebody at your party breaks your lamp, and I turn to that person and I say, I forgive you. It's okay for breaking the lamp. You're going to look at me like, who do you think you are? Right? That's my lamp. That's my property. You can't be forgiving them. That's my job to forgive. And the reality is, is that our sin, it's not just against other people. It's against God. That only God can forgive sin against God. But you read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly saying, your sins are forgiven. He can only say that because he is fully God. Not only is he able to forgive our sins, he's able to remove our sin from us. That's what he did on the cross. He could die for humans because he was fully human, but his death was sufficient to pay for sin against God because he was fully God. And you see, friends, that's what we desire. That's what we long for. As Paul says, we can be loved by God, called to be saints, both known and deeply loved because Jesus is fully human and fully God. You know, Paul ends his introduction by saying grace and peace to those in Jesus Christ. Do you know the peace that comes when you know that the person whose opinion of you matters more than anyone else's fully knows you and fully loves you? You've got nothing to earn, nothing to prove that he accepts you solely on the basis of his grace. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you truly did leave your home in heaven and you became what you had never been without ceasing to be who you always were, that you took on our flesh for us and for our salvation. God, I pray that that would be a truth that comes home to our hearts. Father, that for some of us this morning, maybe who are feeling alone in our suffering and the challenges and the stresses that we're facing, that we would know what it is to go to Jesus and to recognize that, Jesus, you get us completely. You know us because you became like us. And that still you forgive us and you accept us and you love us. Father, I pray that that would begin to wow and move our hearts so that we wouldn't want to keep it to ourselves, but we would want to share that, that good news with others, with our neighbors, with our family members, with our friends, that we would take that, that risk to do so. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would move 
in the hearts of those who are not yet persuaded, not yet convinced that Jesus really is God in flesh. Maybe some in this room this morning. But you would, you would fill us with this desire if we're not yet persuaded. Where we would say, gosh, I wish that that were true. Wouldn't it be amazing if I could be fully known and fully loved in that way? We thank you for this table that reminds us in such a tangible way the truth of the gospel that Jesus you really did take on flesh for us and for our salvation to completely forgive us of our sins it's in Jesus' name we pray Amen friends on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed he gathered